Hey, uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, you can go to Exodus chapter 2. We'll uh, cover that whole thing, so let's go ahead and get to work. As you're turning there, uh, we, we have to do some uh, deconstruction before we reconstruct what uh, we're going at here. So um, in the first century, the first major heresy that came into the church was a, 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 an, adapt, an adaption of Plato's dualism. It was known as uh, Gnosticism. Um, and you might, like, might be like, well, who cares about Gnosticism? They dealt with it. They did deal with it. And yet Gnosticism continues to reign in, uh, in the church. It continues to have this seed in the church that has affected us and has shaped the way we think about God, the way we think about our spiritual lives, the way we think about uh, salvation in just really terrible ways. Um, and uh, in ways that you don't even know, you, you probably have these Gnostic uh, ideas in your eyes. So, so Gnosticism taught this, that there was a duality. There was the spiritual world and there was the physical world. And uh, in fact, the spiritual world, if you uh, achieve the special gnosis or knowledge, you, you could have salvation. And, and that's where all the good things were, all the, the, the best things are, the perfect things. And, and then the physical world was corrupt and evil and decaying, and it's bad. So we don't want anything to do with physical. We only want to get to the spiritual. And you say, so what's the big deal? The big deal is uh, ideas have consequences. And so as, as they began to infiltrate the church, you have a problem when God leaves heaven in glory puts on flesh to redeem the world in the physical world. So Gnostics, uh, the, the Gnostics would say things like, well, Jesus wasn't really a, a human. He wasn't really flesh and blood. Or if he was, it was just very temporary. Um, and, and so uh, they, they would deny the physical resurrection of Jesus. And again, uh, the, the early church fathers, the, the disciples, <clears throat> they start to um, combat this, even in the New Testament. <clears throat> We, we see, uh, we see pe- people like Peter and John say, no, no, we saw Jesus. We felt Jesus. We hugged Jesus. He ate meals with us after his resurrection just to prove that, that Jesus had a physical body as well and that it was, uh, it was being renewed. Now, again, you say, well, what's the big deal? The early church fathers, they would meet and have, cre- they, they would come up with creeds and, and all these things uh, to, to defeat, thoroughly defeat this heresy. And yet it remains. It remains in our hearts and our minds whenever we prioritize uh, the spiritual against the physical. Whenever we think God really only cares about saving souls, he doesn't really care about uh, the things that are going on in this world. We're Gnostic when we think, um, I can sleep with whoever I want. What matters is my soul. God, God can redeem that. Hey, we're Gnostic when we come to the planet and we're like, it's for our consumption rather than our stewardship. Because it's all going to burn in the end. It's Gnostic when we think, hey, when I die, do whatever you want with my body because it doesn't matter. I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven in a spiritual realm. And imagine if Jesus had that attitude. Like we wouldn't have the physical resurrection from the grave. Like, like your body, even after you die, by the way, matters. It's the body that God's going to resurrect. Now, he can resurrect it from molecules all over the place, but your body matters. And it, it begins to affect us when we only prioritize the spiritual and we neglect the physical. We think God really only cares about spiritual salvation. And so God is really only concerned with my relationship with just me and him. It's personal. It's private. That's Gnostic. Like, no, no, God is, is, Jesus said, well, this gospel, it will be good news to all the earth, not just to our souls. 
It is good news. He's rescuing and redeeming the whole thing. Now, the reason why that's important is as we begin to jump into Exodus chapter 2, if we have a Gnostic view of Exodus, a lot of this isn't going to make sense. We're going to be like, that's nice. See, because the fact of the matter is we live in a world uh, uh, that is broken, that is twisted, that is marred, and the brokenness has actual, uh, not just spiritual implications against the Holy God, it has physical, real-world implications. There's real-world injustices everywhere. It's just kind of the air we breathe, the injustices of the world. And, and, and we're all guilty of it, right? Like we, we've all been the victims of injustice, small and large, and the perpetrators. There's personal injustice and there's, there's, there's systemic injustice. And, and it, it just is in this world. And again, if we are Gnostic, we think, well, God doesn't really care about those things. He just wants to get us saved and so we can go to heaven when we die. And that's not the gospel, it was never the gospel. Uh, we have uh, a wealth of church history to fight against that. But, but again, we have this tendency so, to so spiritualize, so personalize the gospel that we twist it into something that it's not. God, we're going to see in, in Exodus chapter 2, is the God of justice. And that is good news. That is good news, not just for our souls, but it is good news for our world. And so as we think about that, we think of uh, our relationship to Jesus. Like we love, we love to see people stand up uh, and uh, with courage and power, uh, stand up in the face of injustice. Like we love those stories and we should. It's part of the image of God in us. This week I was uh, reminded of and, and studying uh, Sir Nicholas Nicky Winton. I got a picture of Nicky here. You might not know who he is. He lived quite some time, 106 years. I love this story. Uh, when he was 30 years old, so uh, coming into 1938, because uh, he was born in May, at the end of 1938, uh, he was a banker in England. And if you know what, what's rolling out in world history at that time, in, in the fall of 1938, the writing was on the wall. Things are going to get very bad for the Jewish people across Europe. Uh, well, Nicky is uh, planning his uh, Christmas holiday. And he plans to go and, and ski the Alps in Switzerland, which is amazing. Like, I've had the opportunity to ski, ski the Alps, in, not in Switzerland, but in Austria. It, it's amazing. And so he's planning on going to Switzerland. Um, but before he goes, a friend of his in Prague, in the Czech, Czechoslovakia at the time, says, hey, w- would you come here instead? There's a new law that was passed in England that said, uh, that made a provision for refugees, children of Jewish descent to come into England as long as we could find sponsor families and raise enough money uh, so that when it's time we can send them back. And he says, okay, I'll, I'll... I'll, I'll, I'll not go skiing. I'll go to Prague. And they, they rent this hotel room on Wenceslas Square, right in the heart of Prague. And they begin to get the word out to the Jewish families uh, that, hey, um, w- if, if you want to, uh, you can send your children. You can't go, but you can send your two-year-old, your three-year-old, your five-year-old, your 10-year-old, your 16-year-old. You can send them on a train across countries, across uh, the English Channel, and they can come to a land that they've never seen, speak a language they've never spoken. Can you imagine being in that situation as a parent where that seems like the best option for you? Well, for hundreds of families, it seemed like the best option. So for three weeks, 
There was this long lines of Jewish families registering <coughs> their children, registering their children. Nikki would go back to England, and then he would start to cast the vision to the English people. Hey, we need sponsor families, and we need to raise some money. And, and they began to uh, get these children on trains. Just so you know what, what was actually at stake here. So over the next six months, they sent about seven or eight trains full of children, just children from Prague through Holland on a ferry into England. Well, the, the one train was, the last train that was scheduled to go was scheduled to go on September 1st, 1939. If you know your world history, that was the official start of World War II as Hitler invaded Poland, and that brought all trains to an immediate halt. There were 224 children scheduled to go on that train, and they didn't make it. Only two of them survived to the end of the war. So there was a lot at stake here. In the end... Nikki and his team ended up saving 669 children. Uh, but this story was lo- largely lost for the next 50 years as um, it just didn't get told. And so one day, Nikki and his wife, they're uh, early 80s, uh, she's cleaning out the attic and she comes across the journal and, and it's all the names of the children and their parents. And she's like, what's this? And he begins to tell her the story. She's like, well, I'm sending this to my friend at the BBC and, and he takes it and, and they invite Nikki to uh, this British television show in 1988 to have a front row seat and, and, and they're just telling the story and at one point the host is telling a story about this little girl that was saved and how she's grown up and what she's done with her life and it's just a, an a amazing story and then she says, actually, uh, Nikki, uh, she's sitting right next to you and now she's like 60 years old and, and he looks over and just starts crying. Then the host says, is there any other children that were on those trains in here? And a couple dozen more people stand up in the audience. And then she says, are there any children of the children and, and, and grandchildren in this audience that uh, owe their life to Nikki and his team? And the whole audience, hundreds of people stand up. It's a standing ovation. And he looks around and he sees, man. And, you, and you, you watch that and you hear that. And, there, and I, I know this about you because you have the image of God. There's something in you that says, yes, that's right. That's good. I want my life to count for that. I want my life to, to me, have that kind of meaning. Like that's in us. But we have this kind of love-hate relationship with justice. We, we, we love stories like that. Our, our best movies, our best books, our, our best novels, all of this will have these stories of, of someone rising up and facing against impossible odds, evil, and, and, and persevering to the end. Like, we love these stories. But, but we also kind of have a hate relationship with it as well. Because we know we live in a world full of injustice. And to actually... Do anything about that is costly. It costs us our time. It costs us our money. It might cost us our safety, our security. It might cost us our pursuit of the American dream. It, it, it will cost us a lot. And so there's this tension in our soul. Like we, we want to be like Nikki, but we also kind of just want to chill out. <laughs> like, I get it. I'm there. But, but today, we're going to see in, in, in chapter 2, there, there's these five scenes. And, and, and the, the strain that runs throughout all five of these scenes is that there's an injustice and, and how are people going to respond. 
How should we respond? And sometimes they respond rightly, and sometimes they respond wrongly. And in the end, we're going to wrestle with, well, then, what does that mean for us here and now? Again, because we're not Gnostics, we're going to see that God is a God of justice, both spiritual and physical, that, that our physical liberation matters to God as much as our spiritual liberation. So if you have your Bible, you, you can begin to look at Exodus chapter 2 as we continue in our series. There, there's going to be these five scenes that we're going to peek in on. And, and again, the strain in all of them is, what do we do about justice? So picking it up actually from last week, uh, in the last verse of chapter 1, as you listen carefully, it says this. The, then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So, so this is, if you remember from last week, this is plan C on Pharaoh's infanticide genocide attempt. Like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to rouse up some, some uh, river police, and, and, and every Hebrew boy has to be thrown into the river. Now, of course, every parent in here knows you're not just going to obey that. Like, none of us would just be like, oh, it's a boy. Let's throw it in the river. Like, no one's going to do that. But that's not how regimes of terror work. Like, I've had the the privilege twice in my life to stand at the very epicenter of some of the greatest injustices the world has ever, ever seen. Twice I've walked the cobblestone streets of Auschwitz and Birkenau where millions of Jews were put to death. I've walked through the killing fields of Cambodia where in my own lifetime, two million people were put to death. And as you walk through those fields, you're stepping over bones and teeth and clothing. And, and in that moment, you're just like, Lord, what is, like, like you, you feel a, a righteous anger. And again, that's part of the image of God in us. When, when you see an injustice, you should feel a righteous anger. And, and just a, a crying out to God, Lord, please don't let this happen again. And yet it does. And it is happening. And justice continues to reign. But, but regimes of terror, that they might tell you, just like the Nazis, hey, uh, kill the Jews. But, or or in, the, in Auschwitz, like, if anyone escapes, then 10 other random prisoners will be lined up and shot to death. So if you're going to escape, just know you're killing 10 other people in that moment. That's how regimes of terror work. So it wasn't just, hey, throw the child in there because I said so. It's a, if we catch you, we're going to kill the child. We're going to kill all your other family. We're going to torture you. And then your community, your, we'll, we'll take some random people out of that and we'll put them to death as well. So you can see what's at stake here. People are turning each other in. Because they don't want that wrath to fall on them. Verse 2. I mean verse 1 of chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. That, that, that language there when it says he was a fine child actually reads in the Hebrew of when she saw that he was good. It's an echo of Genesis chapter 1. God saw it was good. God saw it was good. She sees the image of God and she's like, I cannot possibly destroy this image. I can't, I can't do that. And, and so um, it says, verse 3, but when she could hide him no longer. So for three months, imagine trying to keep your baby quiet for three months. 
Imagine just being terrified of, of your neighbors or the, the Egyptians. If anyone hears a, a cry out, that that could not only be the end of the baby, but the end of your whole family, the end of your whole community. But she does whatever she can for as long as she can for three months to keep it quiet. But verse 3 says, but when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket. You might have a footnote there. She got a papyrus. There's, that word's only used one other time. Genesis chapter 6. She got a papyrus ark. She made a little ark. And that becomes important, not just for this baby, uh, but for foreshadowing for you and for me. And we'll come back to that. She got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch, then placed the child in it and put it, in, it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And again, we just can't imagine how how impossibly painful and difficult that was. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So, so the first scene we have here is, is this baby's parents just wrestling with, what do we do? What's right? How, how do we preserve? Like, it's what we would all feel. So let's look at scene two. It says then, verse five, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. So, so scene two, we have Pharaoh's daughter, the very daughter of the person who has issued this genocidal decree. And the question is, what is she going to do? Does the apple fall far from the tree or not? And in fact, it falls very far from the tree. It says she felt sorry for him. She sees the image of God in this little baby and something deep in her, the, the, the image of God in her hasn't been so twisted, so marred that she cannot still feel compassion for the baby. But there's a tension in the text. She felt sorry for him, but she knows and says immediately, this is one of the Hebrew babies. And she's got a she, she's got a conundrum. Do, do I obey my father? By the way, if she doesn't obey her father, she loses her life as well. So it isn't like it's just morally neutral for her. Do, do I obey my conscience? Even though she has no relationship with God, doesn't know God, she still bears the image of God. She feels compassion. Do I obey my father or do I obey my conscience? Well, praise God. The image of God is in people who even don't know anything about God. And sometimes they follow the leading of God, the image of God in them. Verse 7, then his sister asked Pharaoh, Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Again, I love this because you're going to see this throughout the book of Exodus, this tension, what, what Rick pointed out last week. There's this tension. What's at play here? Who's, whose will is actually in control? Is it the will of Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, making decisions? Yes. Is it God sovereignly making the story all come perfectly to fruition? Yes. How do they overlap? We don't know. But we just know that, that Pharaoh's daughter had a real decision in real time, in real history to make, a real crisis of faith kind of to make, and she makes the right choice. But we also see God's sovereign grace over it all, so much so that this baby gets to be nursed by his mother and get paid for it. I mean, that's God's grace, right? 
Even still, uh, verse 10, when the child grew older, we're not told how old, maybe, I don't know, when you wean then, maybe back then, three or four years old, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter. Imagine how incredibly painful that day would have been to take your child and say, now I'm going to I'm going to give you up for adoption into the household of our greatest enemies. So just feel that with her a little bit. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses. It's, a, it's an Egyptian name saying, I drew him out of the water. And that's so hard. There's just so much injustice going on. There's so much pain here. But even in the naming of Moses, I drew him out of the water. It it foreshadows the rest of the book of Exodus. It foreshadows your salvation and mine. God transferred us, drew us out from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. We are all Moses in that sense. I drew him out of the water. Well, let's go to the next scene. The next scene is Moses a little bit older. This is one day after Moses had grown up. We're not told how old he is. Uh, The New Testament seems to imply that maybe he's really grown up all the way to 40 years old at this point. But one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Again, remember, justice is costly. That there is nothing, uh, nothing externally that would motivate Moses at this point to do anything about this. He's living the Egyptian dream. He's got the palace. He's got the servants. He's got everything you could possibly have in that time and place. There's nothing externally saying, hey, I should do something about this. But somehow he knows that he's a a Hebrew and and maybe he's been ignorant. Maybe he's gone out and seen some injustices in the past and maybe it's just festered in his heart. Maybe he can't sleep anymore. Whatever it is, there's something in Moses saying, I've got to do something. Uh, And that something's going to be very costly if I do it. I mean, doing justice is costly. Just know that. We have to know that. Verse 12, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So so Moses has this internal motivation to make the wrong right, but he does it wrongly. He pursues vengeance rather than justice. In his pride, in his arrogance, he doesn't, he doesn't bring about justice. He actually adds to the injustices in the land. He murders a man and buries him in the sand. And apparently he's okay with it. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow man? See, fellow Hebrew. Moses, wherever he sees injustice, he feels compelled to do something. He just doesn't know how to do it yet. He he just resorts to violence and vengeance. And that's not going to honor God. Verse 14, the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? 
Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Moses has to flee for his life. That means he leaves everything he's ever known in his life. He's only known comfort, safety, security, privilege, all those things. And all of a sudden, everything's been turned upside down. He flees his position. He flees his land. He flees his servants. And he is humbled. He is humbled. But in this scene, we get a picture. God is not asking his people to stand up in vengeance. He's asking his people to walk in humble justice. We think about this even in our own country. In the, during the civil rights movement, there were two schools of thought. There was one that says what's happening is wrong. The violence our people are, are facing is wrong. We need to face violence with violence. Just double up, match them. And praise be to God, there was others like Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders that said, no, we're going to meet violence with peace. We're going to gather in churches with other civil rights leaders. We're going to pray together. And then we're going to walk. And we're going to say, we shall overcome. And we're going to face the, the very people that, are, that have been commissioned to uphold justice, who are, are perpetrating injustices. We're going to face their dogs. We're going to face the water hoses. We're, we're going to face the jeering crowds. And we're just going to persevere. We're going to walk in humility. We're going to, we're going to trust God and praise God. God worked through that. So I think the lesson we learn is we have to have a, a posture of humility if we're going to think about justice at all, rightly. Because justice in our own strength and in our own way is only vengeance and it adds to the problem. Well, we get a, a new scene. Moses has been humbled, but that doesn't mean he still isn't provoked by injustices. Look at verse 16. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Moses is a different man in this scene. He's a humble man. He still sees the injustice reign and he still is provoked to do something, but he doesn't resort to violence. We're not told what happened. We just know that these women came to the well to water them, their flock and, and to get water for themselves. And the, 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 the powerful, the more strong, the men came in and they were just, uh, through threats of violence and maybe sexual violence, ran them off. Moses says, that's, that's wrong. That's an injustice. Moses goes and he doesn't resort to violence. Somehow, some way, he's able to persuade them. Guys, what you're doing is wrong. This is not right. And he convinces them, and the women are allowed to come back. But not only that, notice what he does. And, and what, what the, the daughters even point out. He even drew water for us. This is a man who has never done anything for anybody, ever, in his life. He hasn't had to. But he's been humbled now. He, he's taking on a posture of a servant now. To, to serve someone else is to put yourself under them and, and say, you're better than me. But to do that for women in the ancient Near East? Then Moses has been humbled and he serves them. And so what is his reward? Well, he gets three things. He gets a wife, he gets a meal, he gets a wife, and he gets a kid out of the deal. It's a pretty good, 
pretty good reward. Uh, where is it? Oh, yeah. So, uh, I forget what verse I'm at. Okay. And uh, where is he? Yeah, verse 20. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. So that's scene four, a humble Moses pursuing justice humbly. Now, the last scene is the most important scene. The last scene is the scene where uh, the author pulls back the veil a little bit between heaven and earth and gives us a little insight into what God is thinking, God is seeing in this whole scenario. Verse 23, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So, so they're crying out that they don't know God. Remember, they've forgotten God. That they're, just, man, they're just in so much pain. They're crying out, if there's anyone, anything out there in the universe, please help us. It says their cries went up to God. Verse 24. Notice the verbs that, that are in these sentences. God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God heard. He hears the groaning. He remembers his covenant. He sees. He looks on the Israelites. And he is concerned about them. If C.S. Lewis was writing in uh, a Narnia book at this point. He would say Aslan's about to be on the move. Right, right now God hasn't done anything yet. But Aslan is on the move. God is about to, to, to do something in this moment. He hears, he sees, he remembers, he's concerned. We're not told that that's in the coming weeks, but, but we, what we see here is that God is a God of justice. God is a God of justice, and that is tremendously great news for anyone that is under the oppression under, uh, of, of any kind of injustice, small or large. That God is holy, righteous, and good. He's a God of justice. Amen. However, that's tremendously concerning news. Because how much justice do you want God to have? What injustices do you want God to deal with? Well, I want God to deal with the other injustices. But what about you and me? who not only sin against other image bearers and create injustice, we sin against God and create an injustice. And we've just said, God is a God of justice and he won't let any injustice go unpunished, small or big. That should cause us to tremble a little bit. Where can we hide from his justified wrath against sin? And the scary news is we can't. We can't hide. He sees everything. He knows everything. So, you're like, okay, let's get some gospel here. (laughs) But you should feel that. You should feel that. The good news is what we saw earlier in this passage. God hid Noah from his justified wrath against sinful humanity in an ark and preserved his family. God hid Moses in the tiny ark preserved his life from the wrath of Pharaoh and the judgment of the waters there. Those are what, what theologians call types. 
pointing to a greater reality. You and I can't hide ourselves, but he can hide us by faith in the ark that is Christ. So that on the cross of Christ, the justified wrath against all injustices in the world that gets poured out, doesn't get poured out on us because we are in the ark of Christ. It gets poured out on him and he takes it for us. He takes our sin. Amen. (laughs) And gives us his righteousness. So then how... Should we respond besides by faith being hidden in the ark? But, but how, how do we respond? Not as Gnostics, but as people that says, God, you care about all things. Well, one commentator that I read this week, he had a great line at this point. I'll put it on the screen. It says, Exodus-shaped redemption demands Exodus-shaped mission. Exodus-shaped redemption, so we think about what happens in, in the redemption of Exodus, uh, that should also inform our mission. And, and uh, that is this, that, that it is, it's, dual, it's, it's twofold. The people of God in, in Egypt had to be physically liberated so that they could be spiritually liberated. We still see this in the world today. We, if we're Gnostics and we think, you know, we just need to tell people the gospel, that's only half the gospel. Sometimes they need... They need you to come over and, and fix their door for them so they don't have to give up their kid for, into the foster care system to be open to a spiritual freedom as well. So, so we, we do both. We, we, we don't do one against the other. If we only prioritize their spiritual lives, then, then we say, well, uh, as James said, well, I'm sorry that you're hungry. Sorry that you don't have any clothes, but Jesus loves you. Thoughts and prayers doesn't work. There, there's a world full of desperate need, physical and spiritual. If we only do the physical and we say, hey, we're, we're going to give you clean water, we're, we're going to give you clothes, we're going to feed you, and we neglect their need for spiritual life, we do them an eternal disservice. Like, this isn't an either or, this is a both and. So Exodus-shaped redemption dem- demands Exodus-shaped mission. We, we need to resist a truncated gospel that just picks one or the other. We are a whole gospel kind of people. So, so we pursue justice. We pursue justice locally and globally. So, so what does that look like for us? Well, for us, mostly, we talked about already, it looks like in our gospel communities, we partner with, with, with ministries across the city that are, uh, that are uh, doing the good work uh, of pursuing justice. So, so we, um, we partner with organizations like Secor and, and there's people that, are, are, that, that need food and need uh, supplies in, in our own community. And, and when we band together, we're helping doing the good work of alleviating poverty in our community. We partner with organizations like Joshua Station who are transitioning people from homelessness into whole life again. And we go and we redo rooms and we serve meals. That's doing justice work. When we enter into the foster care system, uh, the, the brokenness and the injustices uh, of this world, we're being actual light in that place so that we can do justice work amongst our local partners. We we do justice work when we partner with other churches to plant churches with similar heartbeats so that they can do justice work in their communities. We do that in Colorado. We do that across the United States. You'll hear all about this over the next couple months. We do that across the world. We want to plant churches with similar heartbeats that have a, a heart for the whole gospel, both spiritual and physical liberation. 
We do justice work when we partner with International uh, Justice Mission, for example. This is our newest partner. You'll hear more about this later. A Christian organization that goes into the places to help alleviate the slavery of the 40 million slaves in the world today. This isn't just an Exodus problem or something in American history. There are 40 million image bearers that that are in slavery today. They're they're sex trafficked. They're in brick kilns. They're in rice mills in India. They're in in Douglas County. This This is a tragedy that is happening today. And God is inviting us to be a part of the solution. So, so how should we respond as God's people? Let's not be paralyzed by the scope of injustice. Let's remember Nicholas Winton. If God can do that through one life, what can he do through one church of image bearers banding together? Like we understand we can't, we're not going to set all 40 million slaves free in the world today, but we can do something. We can engage in some way. So let's not seek self-preservation above all. It is the the modus operandi of our culture and of our community, but let us not be that kind of community in this community. Let's say, hey, we're willing to press in for spiritual and physical liberation. And finally, let's embrace a robust gospel together. Together, hand in hand, going into our community, going to the nations for God's glory and our joy and their joy. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I I, I thank you that even now as there are people across the globe who are crying out, your word reminds us that you hear, you see, you remember your covenant to Abraham. And it wasn't just for the Jewish people to Abraham, it was for all peoples. And Lord, you are concerned. Lord, even in our uh, verses earlier today, we were reminded that you invite us, you don't just rescue us, but you invite us to be part of the solution on the planet. So help us to be a church that steps into these dark places for your glory and for our joy and the joy of all people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.